who is like our Lord? Steadfast love, sovereignty, holy, separate from us. And this psalm we just read also talks about um, his servant David, too. God's plan and purpose in this world for our salvation. He's a good God. So let's uh, come before him. Let's pray. Just ask him to teach us, to lead us this morning as we study his word. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your love for us. That's the thing that we're most aware of. But we also remember you are sovereign. You are holy. You are a mighty God. Gives us confidence in our salvation. But it also gives us a desire to know you better to learn more of you. And we pray that as we sing your praises, as we study your word, that that will become true. Our uh, understanding of you and our worship of you would be, continue to be perfected. We pray this. Pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Well, I feel a little bit like a Sunday school teacher. Uh, we got some different activities going on this morning, okay? So last week we had a quiz, and I know that you'd be disappointed if we didn't have a quiz this Sunday as well. So another quiz coming up, but this one is, is going to be an easy one, right? It's going to be true and false. It's never true that true and false are easy, right? It's easy to choose an answer, but not easy to be right, but... Anyways, these quizzes, don't be intimidated by them. Don't be worried about them because anything that can push us to contemplate God's truth more deeply is a good thing, right? So thinking of what we studied, what we talked about last week, here's the true and false quiz. The real reason we want to know truth is so that we can prove we are right. True or false? (laughs) Yeah. Sometimes that's why we want to know truth, because we want to prove we're right, and, but that's not, the, that's not the purpose, is it? It's transformation. We want to understand truth, so our relationship is transformed, not so that we have power over other people. Okay, number two, the righteousness that produces salvation cannot come from the way we live. True or false? True. Okay. We can never be good enough. It's Christ's righteousness. That's where salvation comes from. Okay, number three. The purpose of gospel truth is to shape our lives and to be shared with others. True or false? True, true. Okay, good, good. You're, you're right on. Salvation produces righteousness, not vice versa. And I heard somebody talking about that just yesterday. He was a Jewish man. And he's talking about the difference between Judaism and Christianity is we Jews believe that we can be righteous based on how we live. And the Christians, they don't. They believe that, like, that happens after. Exactly. That's what grace is all about. It's the salvation that changes us and gives us the ability, even though not perfectly yet, the ability to do what is good, to do righteousness. Okay, Question number five, um, four, sorry. 
Jesus was the only one involved in working out our salvation, true or false? Tricky one. False. Okay. We see all members of the Godhead involved, right? The Father, the Spirit, and the Son. Good. Good. You got it. Number five, once we know the truth, we have no trouble remembering it and living it out. True or false? I, I will take those uh, laughs as a wholehearted false. Yeah. This test is proof of the trouble we have remembering truth, right? And remembering how everything fits together. We still struggle living out. Applying truth is a whole nother thing, isn't it? Well, there you go. Did well. You did well on your, on your quiz this morning. Now, someone suggested last week, why don't we ever read the Nicene Creed? Those creeds that the church made up before to proclaim in truth, the truth that we believe and hold to. Why don't we ever read those? And, and I said, I, I mean, we don't. It's not something that's a tradition, but it doesn't mean we can't. And so we're going to read this morning the Nicene Creed just as part of our review. Uh, you'll be tested how well you read this and, and given a mark. And it says, together... I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. Oh, back up. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light. True God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us men and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. And by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. Now go forward, yes. For our sake... He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried and rose again on the third day according with the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. I believe in the Holy Spirit the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified, who is spoken through the prophets. I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. There's a lot of truth in there. There's a lot of truth for us to know. And yet we can never fully know it perfectly. And we, we struggle sometimes to keep focused on what is the doctrines of our faith, the truths of our faith. Sometimes we, we struggle to know what these, what these things are. But... 
Paul's whole point last week, we were studying Galatians chapter 1, was that yes, we get off track easily. We saw it was happening in the early church in that area of Galatia. And Paul was, Paul was challenging them. Man, you guys are off track really soon, really quick, really badly. And then he admitted there are people who help us get off track. People who think, I have a better plan than the simple gospel. I have a gospel that is more attractive to the human mind. And we have people doing that today. People preaching a gospel that is more attractive than the one that is true. That says, yes, we're sinners. And we need a Savior. And Jesus Christ is that Savior. He's the only Savior. And so Paul says, yeah, there, there are people who are getting us off track. And that's a horrible thing because we're not just talking about, oh, a little bit of confusion in your life. We're talking about a, a gospel that will not save. Because it's not based on what is true. Because it doesn't focus us on Jesus Christ our Savior. And so we hold on to what is true, what is biblically true, because it's our salvation. We hold on to it like you hold on to a palm tree in a hurricane. Okay, you got that picture in your mind? Legs streaming out behind you in the wind, holding on to that truth, because that is our salvation. And to preach any other gospel... To preach gospel that will affect that gospel salvation is a horrible thing. It's to be condemned. But that's not our focus in this life, going around trying to condemn other people. And that wasn't Paul's go-to. In fact, you know, we, we looked at what he was teaching in Galatians 1, and I have to at least mention Philippians chapter 1. Because in Philippians chapter 1, Paul is teaching or talking to the Philippian believers and he brings up this, this idea of there are other gospel teachers. They're teaching the gospel, but you know what? They're doing it with the wrong attitude. They're doing it with the wrong focus. They're doing it out of, with rivalry, with envy, with jealousy. Wrong attitudes. But you know what he says there? He says at least they're preaching the gospel. They had the doctrine correct, but the attitude was wrong. And he's saying, like, you know, they're against me. And possibly what it seems like is that they were jealous of Paul. Jealous of the standing he had before the church. Jealous that people look to him as, as their spiritual father. And so they were trying to harm him in his ministry. And they, were, they had bad attitudes. But he says, you know what? I'm not going to worry about the fact they're attacking me. I'm not going to worry about their wrong attitudes. I'm going to say, at least the gospel is being preached. You see, usually the reason we go after other people is so we feel better about ourselves. And we see that with Paul. That wasn't the, the, the case. When it came to a direct attack on him, he was ready to forgive that or forget that at least and say, you know what? The most important thing is the gospel's preached. But when the gospel itself was tainted, was distorted, 
was no longer a saving gospel because of the untruth that was planted in it, then he put his foot down and said, no, we can't have any of that. We can't have a gospel that's going out into the world that's not a gospel. It's not going to save anybody. We can't have a gospel going out that's going to be a distraction from people and they will not find Christ. And so I pray that we can have the same attitude as well. Not just in the time that we are we're sitting here together as a church family, but also in our lives that we won't be people who are are looking, you know, we're on a witch hunt. We're trying to condemn people who are have a variation or a shade of meaning that's different from ours. No, I pray that we can just live and preach share that true gospel and that will be our focus and yes if we do come across people who are saying things that are other than the true gospel that are distracting people from jesus then we're ready to say listen no not that not that but this it's about jesus it's about a salvation by faith through grace it's nothing of ourselves it's not our own work and I know that the only way we're going to keep that sort of a balance is by walking in fellowship with Jesus, with Christ, in relationship with him. So we need to, need to hang on. We need to hang on. Not be people who are looking to cut off other people. So not a witch hunt, knowing truth, communicating the truth, word and deed. Drawing other people together under that banner, following Christ and his gospel. Now, we talked about the truths that we're going to look at. And this first one that we're going to look at this week, starting this week, in terms of the essentials of our faith and those five V's, those uh, five fundamentals that were identified early in the 1900s. The first one was the virgin birth. Do you remember what all five are? We probably should repeat this several times so that we, we just sort of get them in our mind. The first one, virgin birth. The second one, verbal plenary, good inspiration. The third one, vicarious atonement. We'll talk more about that word later. Uh, the fourth one, victorious resurrection. And number five, I'm going to let you hang here for a moment visible return okay so the first one number one here we are uh virgin birth of jesus christ and this is obviously the important and uh, the the first one because it is the beginning of jesus ministry here his earthly appearance the gospel story and you know we could say but that's you know, it's kind of like a simple thing. If we believe in it, if we believe in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, we could say, well, it's, it's kind of like a curious miracle. And people who don't believe, they would say it's a naive fairy tale. But it is so much more than that. There's so much more than that involved. And, and I think it was captured in the songs we were singing this morning. Juanita held it to one Christmas carol only, 
And it was a, a really neat one because it talked about the triune God. Were you paying attention? Were you just singing? Sometimes we do that, don't we? We just sing. And it's good to sing. But man, God is working when he puts these, these services together. And I'm amazed, you know, I'll share an idea with the people who are picking songs. And then these, the, I end up sitting here singing these songs and going, yep, that's in the passage this morning. Yep, that's in the passage. God brings these things together. And the fact that it was Christ who left his glory, Christ who came into the world, and it was the triune God who was involved in this, and God being sovereign over everything, and we're singing about all this stuff, preparing ourselves. And that's what they say about music. You know, music, it, it, it kind of opens our hearts that our heads can be filled, and, and we, we sing these truths, and then God plants these truths deep in our mind. And we can hum them later in the week, hum and, and think about the, the incredibleness of our God. And we see that this is not simply a, a simple story. It's not a naive fairy tale, as some might think, or just a curious miracle. It's not like just the nativity, oh, Christmas. There's so much truth, deep doctrinal truth in this. We, we discover who God is, more of who God is. And that's theology, right? Theos, God, Greek, ology, study, study of God, we find out about who he is, his character. We find out about his sovereignty. How he is in control of everything over history. And he can come down and step into that history too. We find out about who Jesus is. The divinity and the humanity together, yeah, we, we, we understand that. We talk about the incarnation, God in the flesh. But you know, how does that, how does that happen? You know, that, that God, the divine, and the human connect. They call that the hypostatic union. Did you know you knew about that? We didn't even know we knew about that. But we're involved in these deep studies of theology. We may not know the words, but we think about that. In our meditation and our worship, we think about how the divine and the human come together in this thing that theologians have titled the hypostatic union. We think about the kenosis theory. You do. Anytime you think about what Jesus Christ gave up, we sang about that, didn't, didn't we? He had this, the, the words in the song, I think, were, he has an everlasting glory. He had that in heaven. And yet he stepped away from it. To come down, words of the song, and suffer like we suffer. That's the kenosis theory. And they, they debate on what exactly he gave up and, and what he didn't give up when he came. To, and guess what? We'll never know for sure. 
We don't have all the information on what he gave up and what he didn't give up, but we have things that point to that in the scripture. And sometimes it's not the fact that we know that's important. It's just the fact that we accept and we wonder. We wonder about it. Or we're in wonder about it. Because that's what worship is about. It's about considering these things that God is teaching us, is telling us, and going, wow. Wow. Maybe wow. I'm just thinking this now. Wow could be one of those LOL sort of things, you know, the wonder of worship. Never thought of that before. Wonder of worship. We got a new thing that's trending here in our congregation. The wonder of worship. Wow. And so, this is what's happening here. I'm getting caught up and not turning the page here. All these things that God is teaching us through a simple, simple story. The virgin birth of Jesus Christ. We believe all these things. Let's turn to Luke chapter 1. Because, you know, I think we thought we were doing well if... You know, we're smart if we understand that, you know, about the angels coming to the shepherds. And, and then we remember, and this is what really makes you smart, that there weren't necessarily three wise men. And they did show up two years later. They weren't there in the stable. And we think, oh, yeah, we got it all. We understand the Christmas story. But there's so much more to it. And so we want to read this, this simple part of it in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 down to 38. And we're going, to, we're going to have a look and learn deep theology or deeper theology that, yeah, we've probably thought about to some degree, but just push ourselves maybe a little further this morning. And it says in verse 26, what? In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now, we're into that first verse, and we've got another area of theology right there, angelology. He didn't know that was a, it's, it's part of part of the what do you believe about angels and their roles and how they work and all that sort of thing but we're not going to go into that this morning verse 27 it says the angel came to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David and the virgin's name was Mary that simple next verse says virgin twice affirming this fact that she had not had relationship with a man here she is betrothed or engaged to a man and the interesting thing she's of the house of david which opens up a whole big door on old testament prophecy and we know if we go to matthew we find that joseph is of the house of david and we go back to that whole thing the messianic prophecies uh, David having a throne that will not end, but he died. How can a man who died have a throne with no end? Because the seed of David, right? And so this opens up a whole area of prophecy that we could be studying. Verse 28, we're not getting through this too fast, are we? And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, tried to discern what sort of greeting 
this might be. If she had a quiz right then, she wasn't going to do very well. Mary was confused. She didn't understand. And the angel, verse 30, said to her, don't be afraid. I'm going to clear everything up. Mary, you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb, bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and, his, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And we understand that Mary just understood everything then, right? The angel really cleared this all up, saying, you're going to have a baby without having relations with a man, and that baby's going to be the son of God, and he's going to reign forever. And it says in verse 34, Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I'm a virgin? She's still stuck at point number one, right? She hasn't even gotten to the... the he's going to be reigning forever part. She's back at part one going... I can't have a baby. And she confirms personally what is said of her twice before. She's had no relationship with a man. She's scratching her head going, this, this is... And we have to be honest. I put it on the sign out there so that people driving by would, would think about this. And obviously some people that drive by, they're going to read that. They're going to read... You know, how can it be that, that Jesus was born of a virgin? They're going to go, <laughs> garbage, fairy tale. But some may think, may be challenged in their thinking. We have to admit, it is a challenge to their thinking, and it needs to be a challenge to our thinking. How is it possible? How is it possible? Because it leads us to engage and find the answer. Well, Mary's, Mary's still confused. It go, we go on. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child, will be born, or the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. That's the answer to the first question. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. You know, it's interesting. When God gives us something that too, that's too big to believe, that's too hard for us to conceive, he also gives us signs or helps along the way. And that's what he's saying. He, remember your cousin? I mean, this isn't a, a, a supernatural conception in the sense the Holy Spirit came upon her. But here's a woman who's beyond the age of childbearing. Guess what I did? She and her husband, they're going to have a baby. That'll help confirm to you that I am capable of working in these situations and doing more than we can believe, more than we can understand just from the human perspective, more than we could accept logically, scientifically, as they always say. And so he says, and this is the sixth month with her who has been called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. 
And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And with that, Mary got 100% on the final quiz. You know, each of these sections that we're looking, going to look at this morning, end with Mary's response, and, and her response is, I don't get it, twice. I don't get it. And then finally, I still don't get it, but I accept. I'm willing to submit. And you know, that is truly the sign of faith, the sign that we get it or we get it as much as we're going to get it here, we hear, we understand what you're saying. It's beyond logic, but we, we accept. Not just we accept what you say, we accept our part in it. And so we read through this passage, and we learn... Well, we're going to look at God as the Father, His need to initiate our salvation. God as the Son, His willingness to invest in our salvation. God as Spirit, as the Spirit, His ability to implement our salvation. And we start with this first idea uh, of God as Father. The angel was sent by an authoritative God, the Father, the one who is over all things. And this, this sending wasn't so much in answer to people. Mary wasn't looking for it. And the Jewish people, yes, we can read about the cry of the Jewish people. But they had mostly lost hope in the Messiah. There have been 400 years passed by. And I know we can say that, and we can look at that in, his, in a historical sense, but do we understand that? They had waited hundreds of years for God to communicate the way he had communicated to them through an authoritative prophet vocally in some way, and he hadn't, and they basically lost hope. And those who hadn't lost hope didn't understand how it was going to be fulfilled. And so it wasn't a matter of, of God working with people and their expectations and their desire and what they wanted. It was a matter of God giving, God being the Father and stepping into time and saying, I am now going to do my work. I'm going to fulfill my purposes. I'm going to carry out my plan, as it says in, in Galatians 4, 4. In the fullness of time. In the fullness of time. When God deemed this is the time. This is when I'd always planned that this was going to take place. Now he, he steps into history. And he fulfills his plan, his purpose with exactitude. And he shows favor to a young, a young girl. A noble girl. But you know, no one is capable. No one is worthy. No one is deserving of this honor to be the mother of God in the flesh. But this is how God works. He's gracious. 
He's holy, omnipotent. He's capable of using imperfect instruments to accomplish his perfect purposes. Do you hear that? Do you understand that? Do you understand how that applies to us? We see an almighty God overseeing, superintending this whole salvation process from the beginning. And as it says in Ephesians 1.11, he works out everything according to the counsel of his will. He works out everything according to the counsel of his will. Counsel of his will, his plans, his purposes. God works these things out, everything. Because there's nothing that God has not thought of. There's nothing that God has not prepared in history. There is nothing that God is not working out in the way he wants it to work out. He's a sovereign God. And so he's working out this process historically of salvation. And this is a, a very powerful picture to us, this simple story of salvation and how he works it out in our lives as well. We could say, I could ask, do we believe that God is working out everything according to his will? And we would all say what? True or false? True. We would say yes. Practically, when something goes wrong in your life, when we run up against something and, and we would love to say, why God? Well, we know according to truth that God has a specific purpose for that challenge, for that trial, for that tragedy even. And we know that he's not just a great God. Childhood prayer, right? He's also a good God. That is taught throughout the scripture that he cares about us, that all things do work together for good for those who love God, who are in relationship with him, who are his children. Even the hard things. And so we see how there's this theological truth that we ascribe to, but we're still working on living it out in a practical sense in our lives, believing, believing in the heat of the moment when that thing goes wrong and we would like to react. We can respond. We can respond with a, okay, Lord, this is beyond my understanding. I don't know all the details. Like Mary I accept. I'm your servant, Lord. I'm your child. I don't understand this, but I know you have figured out what is best. And this is part of your plan. And, and some of the most incredible parts of God's plan come through tragedy, don't they? What about the cross? And so we start to realize that in this initial little story 
this event that involves a young girl and an angel and no one else is there. We read about it after the fact, but this is not some big public situation. In this beginning, in this first stage, we have things communicated about the character of God. About the character of the gospel. And about the care of God for his people. And it pushes us to think about the application of those truths to our own lives. Because every one of us, every day, would go through things that would, w where we start to go, well, I don't like this. This is pinching me. This circumstance hurts, or I don't like this. And it's at least in a little way, and some days there are big ways where we're challenged to go, okay, God, I know you are sovereign over everything. I know that you have planned history. You're sovereign over this history. Help me. Help me to just accept from you and then see the beauty of what you're doing through the difficulty that I'm, that I'm facing. And so we have this absolutely authoritative God who's over everything. And we understand this because of his existence. Who is he? Well, we could read a few other passages that talked about him being the creator, the creator God. That talks about him being timeless, right? From before the beginning. For always. Eternal. And we understand that because of his basic identity, when there was nothing else, there was still God. That he was everything, the most important thing. That that is why he has the ability to be sovereign over everything and take us through difficulties and tragedies and not be a bad guy. Because everything is from him and for him and to him. Right? Isn't that the passage in Romans? He's everything. He was there from the beginning. He's the uncaused cause. Now think about that for a moment. Or try to think about that for a moment. Let your mind gag on that for a moment, okay? It's too big for our minds to swallow. That before anything was, there was God, and he was always, no beginning, no end. Living outside of this thing that we're trapped in called time. He's timeless. And so because of that, we know he's authoritative and sovereign over this thing, this this little tiny thing that we think is so expansive that we live inside of, God is outside of that. He's over this. He is, what's it say? The beginning, the end. He's eternal. We're learning more. 
more about the doctrine of God, of theology, because of our consideration of this first part of God's story in this world, where God enters the world. The second thing, God as the Son, His willingness to invest in our salvation. And we read in verse 35, no, sorry, back up. Uh, Verse 30. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. This really is the introduction to this one who we call the second person of the Trinity. And the reason we use that word Trinity, I know there are those who would say, well, Trinity, there's that, that word is not in the Bible. Where does it? It's one of those theological words that has been made up to express what we see in the scriptures. This truth that we have no, we have no other word, no better word to explain this relationship in the Godhead so that we might understand who Jesus is, that he is the Christ, that he's the only begotten of the Father. As it said in the Creed, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. He's equal to God And God's essence, God's essence here in this world, in the flesh. Colossians 1.15, incredible verse, an incredible passage right there. It says, he is the image of the invisible God. He came into this world. God is invisible. God is spirit, it says, no man can see God. But Jesus Christ is the image of God. He makes it possible for us to see God, and not just to see God, to see God in our world. To see God in existence as a human being. A little bit later in that passage, this all has to do with that kenosis theory, that how much did he leave behind, how much did he keep. In verse 19 of Colossians chapter 1, it says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Hmm. All the fullness. Did Jesus Christ stop being God? No. All the fullness. It seemed he left off with some of the abilities or he didn't practice. Didn't practice all his godness while he was in this world. Because it says he was still fully God. Fully God, fully man. Yet with all of this equality and identity, still being God, we read what he says as the son in John chapter 5, verse 30. He says, 
I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. How, how does that work? That being God, he still puts himself underneath the Father in terms of the Trinity. As the Son of Man, as the Son of Man, he says, I will be subject, I will be obedient to the Father. Later on in John's Gospel, which is the Gospel that, that speaks most clearly about Jesus' identity as God, and so as it talks about him being God, still presents the things that he said that shows his subjection to the Father. And he says, for in him, oh no, sorry, I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. It says in 1 Corinthians 15, 27 and 28, God has put all things in subjection under Jesus' feet. Under his feet, it says. So God the Father puts everything in subjection under the Son. And the Son himself will be subjected to him who put all things under him. You get it, right? God is one and yet exists in more than one person. We can't get it. We can't understand it fully. But we can listen to it, we can understand it, and we can wonder about it. Look at it and wonder and go, wow, this was so important to God. Community is important to God. Unity is important to God. And communication of who he is to us is important too. And so I want to go to our spheres. Start with the first one. Not because this explains anything so incredibly. But there we have a relationship sphere. Is that the first one? Or is that the second one? That's the first one. Okay, so here we've got the Father, the Son, and the Spirit inside this it's not an egg okay it's not one of these oh i can explain the 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 trinity here's an egg here's a here's a, a clover here's a you know every one of those explanations ends up if you rely on it too much it becomes a heresy <laughs> you know it just it can't communicate it but what i want us to to maybe push forward with a little bit this morning is an understanding of how the three work together and so what you see is these arrows, these relationships. And of course, everything points to the Father. He is the authority in this relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And you know, there are some people today who say, cannot be. There can be no authority. There can be no authority in the Trinity. Because authority is bad. Now, why do you think they're saying authority is bad? That's one thing. Maybe don't want to be subjected to it. But how about a more generous thing? They're, they're looking at all the authority we have in this world. Is there any perfect authority in this world? There is none. Even when we're the authority, 
There's no perfect authority. There's always failure. In fact, what do we see in a lot of authority in this world? Corruption. They say uh, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely, right? We know that authority in this world, generally speaking, what happens? Someone has to work really hard. They have to have all sorts of accountability and help if they're going to be authority and not be corrupted by it. Not start to abuse that authority. And so what people do is they look at that and they go, no, the father can't be authority. Authority is bad because they're projecting authority. Our understanding or what we see or our experience of authority on the Trinity. But guess what? God's holy. He's perfect. He can have authority without it corrupting him because he's always had that authority because he's been, as we say, the man. No, he's been the God. <laughs> the God for forever. It's not him like us going, I like this. I like having this power. Now, he, just, he just has it. Because he is the only one who was, who is, and always will be from the beginning. And so everything directs to him, the Father, or the Spirit, and the Son. We see these relationship arrows. And we see the arrow going from the Son to the Father. And, it, and it's like, yeah, that's the obedience, subjection. Let's go to the next, go to the next uh, yeah, we see it there. Headship. The Father has headship. Absolute authority, but not corrupt authority. Not abusive authority. The Son is in submission to the Father. Willing to subject himself. Willing to be obedient to the Father. And the Spirit, we haven't even got to him yet. He's honoring. He is honoring both the Father and the Son. Let's move along to the Spirit. God is the Spirit. His ability to implement our salvation. If we read through verse 35 down through 38, we see that He is the agent working out, bringing salvation to the world in this young girl. The Holy Spirit, or the Sometimes I like, you know, we sort of say the Holy Spirit and we, we kind of design our own definition for what that means in our own mind. And sometimes I like to say what is biblical, the Spirit of God or the Spirit of Christ. So the Spirit of God is the agent that initiated the life of Christ, the gospel work in this world, by planting the divine seed in a human body making possible this mystery. This mystery of a human being with a divine nature. Someone being fully a man and yet also the full of the fullness of God. And this intervention in history was for us not simply to make salvation possible for the world, but also to make salvation plausible for us. 
as individuals. How so? Well, who is responsible for Jesus being born in Mary? I'm thinking of that Christmas song, right? Be born in me. Be born in me, which was in the, the cantata, the Christmas choir thing that we sang. The story, thank you. But who's how is it possible that Christ be born in you and me today? It's a work of God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And so in this initial stage, this initial part of the story, the gospel story, Jesus Christ in this world, salvation coming to mankind. We see things being expressed and explained that help us understand how it connects with us, how God connected with us, how God saved us. It was a work of his spirit in our lives. The spirit of God is still coming to people one at a time to deposit or to be our deposit, right? He deposits the spirit of Christ in us. And, well, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says he is a deposit. A guarantee. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. Yes, we need to respond like Mary. That positive response where we say, okay, God, I, I can't understand this. I don't understand how you do the work in my heart and how this all fits together. Just like I don't understand how the divine and the human come together in Jesus, but I accept, I receive what you are doing in my life. I receive what you tell me is true. But it's God who starts the work. It's the Spirit's conviction. It's the Spirit's convincing. We know that. Because apart from Him, we, we wouldn't even get to the place where we accept this thing. We read from Romans chapter 3, there's none righteous, none who understand. There's none who seek after God. But God in His Spirit does this work. This He begins the work and John 16, 8 says, when he comes, he'll convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And that's what he does with you and I as individuals too. What the Spirit began in this gospel ministry to the world, in Jesus coming into the world, is convicting and convincing. He does in our lives. He, he convicts. That's how we come to Christ. That is how we we come to salvation. We start seeking salvation because he's convicting us. You're a sinner. You're unworthy. You're unworthy of a holy God. And we start to go, well, what do we do? And God, through circumstances, and you know how the circumstances were in your life, and you remember 
what that conviction was like too. If you're saved now, it was because you understood you were a sinner and you needed a savior because you were unworthy to stand before a holy God in eternity and, and God maybe sent somebody across your path. Or he maybe turned you to his word. Or maybe a, a conglomeration of different things. Maybe you grew up in a family where the gospel was known and presented again and again and again. But it wasn't until the spirit did the work. Convicting, convincing, and you said, Lord, I don't understand. With the faith of a child, even maybe as an adult. You said, I, I need that. I am hopeless without you doing that work in my heart. You saving me, bringing me from death to life. Your righteousness in Christ Jesus being applied to my life because of the cross. Because he became a man. Because he, And so it's interesting because what we have here is is this relationship the godhead being involved in this and how they work together and you see all the arrows are pointing away from the spirit we see these these verses these are just one verse for each one that you can't read from where you are but believe me i went through lists of verses that that showed the headship of the father, that showed the son's willing submission, and that presented the spirit as the one who, who wasn't there looking for glory himself. Can we sing a song of worship that includes worship to the spirit? Yes, we can. But his constant focus is giving honor to the son, giving honor to the father. And we say, how do we understand this? Well, this, this actually, this relationship sphere is something that started me thinking on this. It was done by Del Tackett in the, the Truth Project. Some of you have seen that. And, and I actually just went and developed a little further, but something he shows as well, though. Next slide. We recognize that relationship, don't we? The headship, the submission, the honor. Because it happens in the family relationship too. That's what God prescribed. And what this world has so much trouble accepting because once again, what do we know about authority? It's corrupted in this world. It's never perfect. And it's often abused. How can we accept the, the headship of the husband in a family when I'm imperfect and I will make mistakes, I will be in error and will abuse my authority. We can only accept it because God has given it to the husband and said this is how it's got to work. It's got to be a model and as you work for it, you're going to understand better and appreciate more that first relationship in the Godhead. And so, you know, when we read Ephesians chapter 5, which Ephesians 5 and 6, this is where God lays it out through Paul so clearly. 
there's that one verse, I think it's 529, where, where, you know, we go, oh, we're going, I understand how a marriage relationship is supposed to work, what God's plan is. And he says in verse 29, the mystery I'm telling you about is not so much the marriage, I'm talking about Christ and the church. And we go, oh. He's using a human relationship to teach us of heavenly things. And we see here that, you know, yeah, it's, it's a struggle, but our headship as, as a husband, as a father, my headship isn't something that I've earned, that I've got because I'm, I'm smarter than everybody else. It, it's something that God has given to us and said, yeah, he, and it's not abusive. How could it not be abusive with, with the father and the son? Well, because the father and the son are one. Wait a minute. What about the husband and wife? What does the scripture say about them? They're one flesh. You're still getting top marks on the quiz. Bonus questions even. We're one flesh. And you know what? When we're not one flesh... When we're not living out practically that unity that we're supposed to have in our marriage, how does that headship submission thing work? Not so well. Right? And there are going to be ups and downs because it's a struggle. It's a struggle. But it doesn't mean that's not what God has ordained, designed. And when we think about the headship of the Father, It's not a, you know, serve me thing, is it? We know it's a responsibility thing. We know from Christ when Jesus is talking, or when God's talking to the husband, he says, you know, you're to be head of the, the home, head of the wife, as Christ is to the church. And we gloss over the part where it says, and Christ gave his life sacrificially for the church not hard for a wife to submit to a husband who's ready to give his put his life on the line for her put his life on the line and help with some of the housework <laughs> you know the husband's always he's laying there on the couch going I'm ready to put my life on the line <laughs> now we, we put our life on the line in all sorts of ways. We put ourselves, what we want, our desire, our comfort to one side, and we say, I want to sacrifice for my family. And then that whole idea of, oh, submission. Yeah, that makes sense. He's, he's willing to put his life on the line, and she's helping, you know, one flesh relationship. They're in unity together. You know what this is doing? This isn't a marriage seminar. I should say it isn't just a marriage seminar. Because this can be helpful to us in redefining what our roles are biblically in marriage. But it also is teaching us of that first relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. What do we know in Ephesians 6, 1 and 2 about the, the, the child in, in the family? Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. We see the Spirit fills that role. 
It's not like he's the child, but he honors the son. He honors the father. And so as we think about that, in terms of the application to the family relationship, we go, okay, understanding a bit more about the relationship of the Trinity, how they work together. Do we understand how that one and three thing works? No, we don't. We've never seen it in this world. We can't understand. We, we can't look around us and see a person that is, that is one and yet three. We can't. And yet with God, it works. And so he's giving us this way of, of understanding how it should function. We go to the next slide. We can throw it into the, the church situation. Christ is the head of the church, right? How many verses in the scripture talk about Christ being head of the church? That's Colossians 1.18, which says he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. In everything, he might be preeminent. And then we have elders or leaders in the church. Elders is the most common term for them. And what are they to do? Oh, we're to be in charge. No. Submissive, subject to God. That's, that's our focus. Congregation, yeah, honors the elders as, they, as they're subject to God. But you notice there's always this direct line. There's this direct line right to Christ as well. It's not that, oh, you're under us, you just listen to us and what we tell you, that's, you know, no, no, you're still in relationship with God, with Christ, the head of the church. Honor him. I struggle to say this, honor the elders who are not perfect. And the church functions together, but it's under the headship of Christ. Headship, which means authority, right? And responsibility over that. Did Christ take responsibility for the church? Gave his life. Let's go to another one. Politics, headship, God should be, right? Is that working out? Not so well these days. King, government, subject to God, not happening. Citizens, are unhappy and not honoring the government the way they should and struggling to see how God's involved in this as well. But as the Christian church, what should we be doing? Should we still be honoring the government? Yeah, why? God, God put, the, but even the bad ones? Even the bad ones, why? Why? For our learning to teach us to show us who we are as a people as a society we always get what we deserve in terms of leadership that's what hurts most isn't it that's what hurts us the most we don't want to be identified with a poor leader we don't want to be but you know what our willingness to honor them which does not mean we agree with them in everything they do and say which doesn't mean that that you know, there's always that Acts 5.29 verse that says, you know, when the, the apostles say, who do we obey, God or man? You know, when, 
What they're asking us or telling us we have to do is in direct opposition to what God's word is telling us to do. Then we go, well, no, we have to keep preaching the gospel. But we understand, we, we still have a direct line to God. We are under his authority and under his authority as he has put those who are in authority over us in authority over us. And so it's with an eye to God that we honor them. Interesting. Let's look at it. I mean, we could flip through others, but there's, there's one more. You know, just think of work, bringing it home. More practical even. Our boss is still God. He's the one who's overall. He's, he, he's why we obey our boss, right? Uh, servants. Uh, talks about servants in, in, I think in Ephesians 6 as well. Maybe it's just Peter. I don't know. Peter 2, 18 to 20. Servants be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good, but also the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. What credit is it? Uh, goes down. You know, it, it's this idea. This is showing our relationship with God. When we're willing to obey someone who is in authority over us, we understand all authority comes from who? God. And so this pulls it all together in a very practical way as we look back to the nativity story. Who is God? What's his authority? How does it all work together in terms of the trinity? And we go down through the, the headship of God, the submission or the sonship of Jesus and we arrive at the Spirit the Spirit of God who brings the authority of God to the heart of the individual and shines a light on the Savior the Son of God Jesus Christ the Spirit's role is serving selflessly Jesus talks about this in John 16, 13, and 14. He says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. Whose authority does he communicate? God's. He's the spirit of God, isn't he? But whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare it to you in the things that are to come. He will glorify me. This is Jesus speaking. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So he speaks on God's authority, pointing to him. He glorifies Jesus Christ. And there's so much to glean from this simple event. We're going to take another week to look at it, but let's settle on this here this morning. Here are some things. God as Father was involved in everything. God as the Father was involved in everything, starting with the original idea and it was his will that was being worked out by the Son and the Spirit. But he was not just the sender. I think sometimes we, we in our human minds were going, wow, that was like, I mean, he, he kind of like pushed the Son out of heaven and said, you go die. No, he was not just the sender. Because of the unity, 
we know that God came to earth to die for us. We know that in Isaiah 43, 11, Isaiah 43, 11 says this, I am Yahweh, or Jehovah God. Beside me there is no other Savior. He was not just the sender, but he suffered as well. God suffered on the cross. How does that work? How does that fit together? How does he remain the Father in heaven and yet partake of the suffering? And yeah, I'm not going to say anymore. I'll probably start spouting heresy. Because we're talking about things we cannot plumb the depth of but we can accept them. Jesus as God, he was not simply the pawn, the patsy, the victim in our salvation, but he was, Jesus as God was part of the original decision. It says, Revelation 13, 8, the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world, before this world began, he was a part of that original decision. And as he was involved in creation, he understood that it was all about him coming into the world and dying on the cross. And he was in full agreement. In full agreement. The Spirit is God. He's not simply a force or a feeling in our spiritual experience that we can manage. That's most often how he's used. Even in the church today. The Spirit is somebody we can manage. We manipulate sometimes. People think. No, we're talking about the Spirit of God who initiates the work of grace in us from conception, as with Mary. Salvation by faith in Jesus, just as he did with Mary, to bring salvation of Jesus to the world, and to you and I as individuals. Do we have a better understanding? Do we have a complete understanding? I would say we have a better understanding. As we've talked through these things, as we've begun this, as we've considered this this morning, are we ready to have a better acceptance? Are we willing to say, like Mary, as you wish, Lord, as you wish. Father, help us. Help us to, to plumb the depths, to meditate, and not just to stop here, but to continue to meditate on this truth. How you came into the world to save us. What that involved, who that involved how it was worked out. May we have an understanding that continues to be more refined and more accurate in terms of what you want us to understand from your word. And may the wonder just continue to grow. May we continue to be, to be disciplined enough to run ourselves up against this stuff that we can't completely understand. Just to consider it and to go, wow, 
to worship you because of what you, you have done. To understand what we're a part of. And to share that wonder with those around us. People who are in the same process in this congregation, but also people who are outside of this process. And Lord, maybe you're calling them as well. Help us to continue to draw closer to you, to be better servants of yours, more submissive, ready to do what you've called us to do in terms of glorifying you in this world. Amen.